Hi there, and welcome to the Chinwag with Mike. I'm not quite sure what to call this now, because it used to be called the Vendorwag. Um, I've got this kind of weird disposition to create and invent new words all the time. Um, so one idea I've had for the name of this particular podcast and these sort of generations of podcasts I'm doing now that I'm, I'm with VMware is the, the VMware Wag. But I'm not sure whether I can go around inventing marketing terms and product terms of my own anymore. But there we are. But the intention of, the, of these uh, sets of videos that I'm doing is to do something that I've been doing for a while, which is, uh, um, as you might know if you're a subscriber, I've been doing these vendor wags where I'd speak to different businesses that had technologies that aligned to virtualization in general and usually specific to VMware. And uh, I'm not going away, um, but I'm going to start doing that with uh, teams of people within uh, VMware internally and try and use uh, this as a platform to sort of educate people about the new stuff that's coming out and of course we've had this big uh, launch and uh, availability of, of vSphere 5.1 so with me on the the line today is uh, a chap I first came across I think about four or five years ago when I was uh, a humble uh, VMware certified instructor and I'd used to go along to the the uh, European TSX, as it was called at that point. And I came across this guy called Cormac Hogan doing a presentation about the, the top 10 uh, storage challenges uh, that VMware customers uh, face. And I must admit, each one of those 10, I ended up weaving into my, my course as if I was some sort of storage dude who really knew what was going on. Little did they know that I'd just ripped off all those really great ideas and great points from, from Cormac. So, uh, Cormac, I owe, I owe you a debt of, of some description. I'm not quite sure how I'll, I'll repay that. At some stage, I'll buy you a couple, of, a couple of pints. That's what I'm thinking of doing. So, Cormac, thanks for joining us. And can you just sort of quickly introduce yourself to the, the people listening in and people watching the video? Sure, Mike. Uh, my name is Cormac Hogan. I currently work in technical marketing at VMware. I've been at VMware for almost eight years now, starting off in support, which is when we first met. I spent a number of years in training as well, and more recently joined the tech marketing team with responsibility for storage. So what we're going to go through, we're actually going to do two, um, part one and part two about the new storage features in vSphere 5.1 mainly because there's, there's, there's a significant number of them. And I want to give Cormac here, you know, as much bandwidth as possible to go into detail about what those new features are. So rather than it being a very, you know, high level overview, you know, we've got somebody here who really knows how all this stuff actually works. So um, there'll be a part one and a part two, but without further ado, can I turn over to you, Cormac, and give us a kind of a quick intro of what we're going to be covering in both parts? Of course, Mike. So really what we're going to look at are the um, 5.1 features that we've introduced just with the, uh, the vCloud suite, or vSphere suite that we just announced last month. Uh, there's a number of uh, incremental storage enhancements, uh, touching on a lot of products and features, but I would say that there's no major uh, storage feature like we had with the 5.0 release. In 5.0, we have things like uh, the storage APIs for storage awareness, or the vSphere APIs for storage awareness, the VASA release. We also had the profile-driven storage, so some major uh, storage enhancements in the 5.0 release. In 5.1, there are more incremental uh, type uh, improvements that we have made to various 
storage features, storage protocols, and uh, products that would use vSphere storage. So the first thing I wanted to talk about, I suppose, is just by way of introduction. In vSphere 5.0, we made a lot of enhancements to improve on its scalability, performance, and interoperability between VMware products and features. We're building on that in 5.1. Some of the major goals that we have is to increase the um, interoperability between the vSphere layer and products that would sit on top of that, such as VMware View and vCloud Director. So I'll touch on what storage enhancements we've made that um, you know, improves that interoperability with those products. We'll also have a look at the various storage protocols. There's things like um, enhancements to FCOE. We have also made some enhancements to iSCSI and fiber channel protocols as well. And then we look at enhancements like uh, improvements that we've made to storage DRS, storage IO control, and storage vMotion. One of the new things that I'm quite excited about is we've introduced IO device management or IODM is what we're referring it to. And what this is all about is enabling vSphere administrators to do troubleshooting and analyzing of the storage infrastructure, but from the ESXi host level. So in a nutshell, that's what, um, you know, those are the major enhancements that we've made in 5.1, but we'll look at the other improvements that we've made as well. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, it's a 5.1 release, not a 5.0 release. So, I mean, there was a lot of debate at VMworld, you know, uh, have the changes that have been introduced evolutionary or revolutionary? And I was saying to people, well, it's a 5.1 release, it's not a major release otherwise the the first number would be bigger <laughs> than, than the other number so it was kind of a funny question for people to to ask you know well you know what you know is it a major release so like well we wouldn't be calling it 5.1 if it was a major release we'd be calling it something else but the way i've sort of looked at it and i've always said this about uh, major and minor releases even the minor releases if you take all these features and put them together Individually, the, the features are quite small. Put them together, they're greater than the sum of the parts. And that's what I've said about all the sort of um, major and minor releases that we had between, you know, 2, 2.5, 3, 3.5, 4, 4.1, now 5.1. Um, there's a, you know, if you make lots of little changes across the board, what you end up is collectively with something that's bigger than the individual parts at the end of the day. That's it. And while other, um, there might be some significantly bigger changes made to um, other features of vSphere uh, from a storage perspective, they're all really quite um, minor enhancements. Okay, so let's just move on and have a look at our first feature, and this is VMFS file sharing limits. Now, this is really an enhancement that relates to linked clones. In previous releases of vSphere, the maximum number of hosts that could share a base disk and have linked clones presented from that base disk was eight. In vSphere 5.1, we're increasing that from eight to 32. So that means you can have a single um, desktop base disk, for instance, of which linked clones are linked off of that base disk. And those linked clones can now reside on up to 32 hosts. Um, so what that means for us, and basically the two main users are consumers of link clones right now, or VMware View and vCloud Director. And what that means for 
the next release of VMware View, the next release of vCloud Director, is that they can be far more scalable using VMFS than they were before. Because so it was a limitation in the file system that prevented people from having uh, more than eight nodes in a HA or DRS cluster because of the way it referenced the the parent VM. Well, it's it's it doesn't affect um, the HA and DRS clusters now, Mike. It's just for Lin clones. So right now, I think with the five point one release, the HA DRS clusters they can be up to sixty four nodes already, but they don't actually share the same file on the VMFS file system. All right, and I didn't realize that. I always thought the two were directly related to each other, but that's not the case. No, in this case, it's it's the the number of hosts that are actually sharing the same base disk, so they would all have a read-only um, lock, let's say, on that base disk for their link clones. All right, okay. Yeah. So the one thing to point out as well is that already we have a VMware View release 5.1, but that's not compatible with vSphere 5.1. That's an important thing to highlight because there's been a bit of confusion around that. So I think we're waiting on the next release of VMware View um, to get this functionality. I think I made the joke on, on John's call that we'd be calling it uh, vSphere um View 5.1.1. <laughs> or something, yes, indeed. <laughs> Just to make sure all the numbers still line up, you know. Yeah. So there was one other thing as well, that the, the VMware View 5.1 release, which came out earlier this year, this already had this functionality for NFS data stores. Mm -hmm. So you could actually have 32 hosts accessing uh, the VMDK base disk if it resided on NFS. But we need this 5.1 release of vSphere for the same functionality to be available for. Now, you know what? That's that's probably an error in my book on end-using computing because I probably looked at this and assumed that it affected, that it was a link clone thing and uh, it didn't vary whether you were on NFS or VMFS. So uh, anybody reading the end-using computing book, I think there might be a little bit of an error in there because I might have said, um, the you know the 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 maximum was eight, <clears throat> assuming that the same limitation on VMFS affected NFS, and that that sounds like I've got that wrong. I think. Well, prior to the VMware View five point one release, it was eight on NFS and eight on VMFS, mm. but they um, they lifted that restriction in View five point one for uh, NFS, right, okay. and now we needed um, we needed to improve the locking on VMFS or make that locking enhancement on VMFS for uh, View two. I'm with you. 32. I'm with you. Cool. Okay. Oh, one other thing that we probably should mention around VMFS and 5.1 is we now have VOMA, and I'm going to ask for your help <laughs> what that acronym is because I keep forgetting what it is, <laughs> but it's something like the on-disk metadata analyzer or something like that. In essence, what we have now is a file system checker for VMFS in 5.1, which is really cool. Cool. So what it does is it will check the LVM, the Logical Volume Manager layer, and it will also check the VMFS metadata layer and just make sure there's no inconsistencies. So, for instance, if you had a, a storage failure, a hardware failure, or whatever the case may be, you bring your host back up, you want to check the consistency of your VMFS, and it works for VMFS 3 as well as VMFS 5. You can use this VOMA utility, which is a CLI utility now. So that's, that's really neat. All right, sounds good. Okay, so 
that brings me on to our next feature, which is space-efficient sparse virtual disks, or what we're referring to as SE sparse disks, uh, to make it a little bit easier to, to read. So there are two things which SE sparse disks address for us. The first one, and it's probably the really the, the more important one, is the ability to reclaim stale or stranded space within a guest OS. Now we have the unmap, unmap mechanism since 5.0. This is the ability to reclaim stale or stranded space on thinly provisioned VMFS file systems. This is taking it one step further and to be able to re reclaim stale or stranded space within the guest OS itself. The second thing with SE sparse disks is we have a dynamic block allocation unit size, also referred to as the grain size. This is an issue for linked clones once again, because linked clones, as they exist right now, they're ba based on a format where the linked clone grows at 512 bytes at a time. This is not suitable for a lot of storage arrays because it leads to a situation which is commonly referred to as partial writes, where we're not writing um, actual block sizes that suits the storage array. So having this dynamic block allocation unit size where we can change the grain size, in other words, how uh, or how large or how big a VMDK grows in size is going to make uh, definitely link clones work an awful lot better with certain storage arrays. The other um, benefit of having that dynamic block allocation unit size is that certain applications which run in guest OS, inside the guest OS, have a preference for a particular grain size as well. So not only can we tune that allocation unit size to suit the storage array, but we can modify it to suit the applications running within the guest OS. Would I be right in saying that's a bit like a, an alignment issue to some degree? Indeed, it can lead to alignment issues as well, Mike, because if you have that very small grain size, um, you, you definitely could end up in a situation where your partitions within your guest OS do not line up to tracks on the, uh, the storage array. Right, I'm with it's you. It's definitely another issue, yeah. So the one caveat here to call out is that this is our very first release of the SE sparse disk, and we are only going to have a single support case for using it in, in 5.1. And that will be the next release of Vue. The next release of Vue will be the only supported use case for SE sparse disks. And the, the reason why we focused on Vue initially is that with the Vue desktops based on linked clones, they start off very small, but over a period of time, they, they tend to bloat out. And so there's additional administration overhead put on the view admin where they have to maybe recompose those view desktops to bring them back down in size. So if we had a way of reclaiming that stale or stranded space inside in those bloated desktops, um, that, that would alleviate those view administrators from having to do that task. And so that's the first thing to focus on. And then uh, the other thing, of course, is that we have, um, you know, they, when using view desktops, they're obviously deployed as linked clones or they can be deployed as linked clones on the storage arrays. So again, we wanted to be able to have that block allocation size um, tunable to suit the storage array. But again, just to call out, it's just going to be the next release of view 
that will be the use case for SE sparse disks. And, and therefore, it's not exposed in, in any other interface. You won't see the option in, in the, the new web client or at the command line. Is that right? You won't see it at the at the CLI. You won't see it at in the in the um, the UE. That's correct. But the API does exist. Right here. It, there is um there are API calls for creating SE sparse disks. Yeah. Okay. So moving on. So this is where um, we see the SE sparse disks being used. So for those of you familiar with View, you start out with your parent image. It gets snapshot. Uh, then we create a replica image, um, which is essentially just a thin image of that parent. And then from there, if you choose the link clone-based desktops, you roll out the desktop based on the link clone, and they have a snapshot associated with them as well. It's the linked clone and its associated snapshot that will use SE sparse disks rather than the VMFS sparse format, which is what they're currently based on. So I just wanted to talk a little bit now about the space reclaim mechanism. So the space claim mechanism will be done via an API call to VMware tools. Now the process is a wipe and shrink process. It's a two-step process. So if I take you through what's involved in those two steps, once we initiate the wipe through an API call to VMware tools, that does a scan of the file system within the guest OS. So we go through the file systems on the guest OS looking for space that was previously used but is no longer used. And what we do is when we find those blocks of free space, we actually issue a SCSI unmap command from the guest OS. But of course, we don't send that SCSI unmap command all the way out to the storage array. What we do is we trap it in the VM kernel. And once we have those SCSI unmaps trapped in the VM kernel, within those uh, SCSI CDBs, SCSI commands, we actually have the range of blocks or the actual blocks within the VMDK that are no longer used. So the great, what's really cool about the SE sparse disk is that we can take that information and use it to reorganize the VMDK. So our SE sparse disk VMDK might look something like this, where there's blocks of free space, maybe towards the beginning, and then blocks of free space towards the end. And you can see it's just uh, you know various blocks used with gaps in between. Using the information that we've got from the unmap command from the guest OS, we can now begin to move the blocks that are consumed at the end of the VMDK into free space at the beginning of the VMDK. What that basically means is that we end up with a contiguous range of free space at the end of the VMDK. Once we have that range of free space, we can then go ahead and initiate the second step of our wipe and shrink operation, which is the shrink, and that's essentially sending an unmap command now to the storage array. So there's two unmaps in this operation. There's the unmap that comes out of the guest OS, which we trap in the VM kernel, then we reorganize the SE sparse disk to make a contiguous range of free space at the end, and then we send an unmap which will free up that dead space in our VMDK. So this unused space, I mean, it's a bit of a, a kind of, of a, a strange phrase. Are we really talking about deletes and reads and writes that have occurred that, you know, the the 
the file system says that block of data isn't there, but it actually hasn't actually been purged from within the Gastor yet OS. Is that what we're reclaiming here? Exactly what it is, Mike, yeah. I mean, we used to call that sort of, I mean, another aspect of that is kind of fragmentation where, you know, most file systems, they just find the first area of free space and and write to write to it. And that's normally how deleted data would eventually be destroyed because it was just marked for deletion and it would be destroyed by some other data being overwritten on it. But I guess the difference is, is that we've got this thing called a virtual disk and link clones. So the way we perhaps read and write to the disk has changed. Is, is that a, f- a fair thing to say? Or is it is it still, is this a virtualization only kind of problem or have we always faced this really? No, we've, we've kind of faced this. Um, I think if you're running, how we used to address this in the past was a very manual process. We could get around it. I don't know if um, some of the listeners um, would have done this in the past, but we would run an sdlease type command within the guest OS, which ended up writing zeros into space that was no longer um, you know, used into that dead space. And then we would have to do a storage v motion operation and move the virtual machine between one data store to another data store. And the act of just moving the virtual machine between those two data stores did shrink essentially what, what we're talking about here. But now what we have is just a... Um, you know, an API call, which will go and do this for us. Now, the other thing to call out here is that um, because the only use case is View Composer, there will be something within View itself that will initiate this and allow you to schedule it out of hours and so on. Sure. I guess a lot depends how you sort of build out your virtual desktop environment as well. I mean, there are some people who use link clones, but they mark the virtual machine to be deleted at first uh, logout, so they're constantly creating and destroying the 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 kind of link clone, right? Um, and then there are people who use link clones, but it's a persistent desktop where uh, they're not destroying the virtual machine at logout. They want to keep that desktop. So I guess the advantages will come depending on how you've chosen to create and build out your view environment as well. Indeed, indeed, and it's the it's the the linked cloned persistent desktop use case is the one that um, you know this should alleviate a lot of the um, the bloating issues we see with those desktops. So we'll move along. So in 5.0, we introduced a bunch of VAI NAS primitives, and one of those was the ability, well, what we refer to it as the fast file clone primitive, and this was the ability to offload a um, snapshots and link clones from the ESXi host to the um, to the storage array. Now, VMware View 5.1 also introduced a, um, a tech preview of using this offloading technology. I think we refer to it as VCAI, the View Composer Array Integration, which basically meant that the link clones could be offloaded to the storage array um, to be instantiated rather than using rather than using resources on the ESXi host, CPU memory resources, and so on. The thing we wanted to call out about the vSphere 5.1 release is that the same functionality has been embedded for vCloud Director. So vCloud Director vApps, which are built on link clones, the functionality is now built in that those link clones can now also be offloaded to the storage array for instantiation. But of course, like the VMware View um, 
tech preview for VAI NAS. A vCloud director will also require a NAS plugin from the storage array vendor in order for that functionality to work. So the NAS primitives require a plugin. The block primitives do not. Mm. I um I wanted to include this in my VMware View 5.1, but but I, sadly I couldn't because the the firmware I have on my particular uh, NAS arrays isn't compliant with VIA, and it was one of those situations where. I could have gone through a very complicated, well, not complicated, but quite intrusive upgrade of that firmware, only then to have to do it again for another update mm-hmm. that's further down the pipe. So in the end, I decided to just wait until not the next update, but the update after it, because it to avoid having to do two updates within a very short period from this particular um, storage vendor. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and it was I, just I, a tech preview anyway, Mike. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, it wasn't... It wasn't a fully supported, supported yeah, feature. Yeah. The reason I was so interested in it from a, a VMware view perspective was I'd, I'd covered linked clones, but I also had a ch- separate chapter on things like um, EMSCs, um, VSI, NetApps, VSC, and the Dell uh, Ecologic Int- Integration Toolkit to uh, mm. VMware. And I was showing the kind of vendor's ability to create virtual desktops but i've always felt that actually what i wanted was the kind of combination of those two together because there's stuff i really love about link clones um but i don't get that from the array vendors and there's stuff i like about the array vendors cloning process but i don't get all the features of of link clones so my my holy grail when i was an independent was to sort of see these come together and i think we are kind of making inroads into that and it's the other reason i'm interested in this is my big project is to learn everything i can about vcloud director i'm going to do the the exams on vcloud director i'm going to go through all the training um yeah. and it's sort of oh i've done this before in or looked at this in before in vmware view and i can now do this in vcloud director so i can kind of see like overlaps on my knowledge where although i'm in a totally different kind of field from end using computing to you know cloud there's still um, technology uh, sharing, for want of a better word, that can happen between one part of what we do into other things that we do. Indeed, and I think actually, now that you mentioned um, NetApp's VSC, I'm pretty sure that the version that they have in beta right now will have the vCloud Director um, support for offloading the link clones. I'm pretty sure I read that in their release notes. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, so they're kind of, they're there with it already. Okay, then, so I think the next thing we have to show is probably the last um, topic that we will look at in the part one of this series, and that's that we have now bumped up the number of nodes that we support for Microsoft failover clusters from two to five. So we had to do quite a bit of testing to get this to work, Mike, because there was two different uh, quorum models so when you go up to five nodes, you could have a node that, ha- or you could have a cluster with five nodes, or you could have a cluster with four nodes. Now, when you have a four-node cluster, you could end up in a situation where you have a split brain, with two nodes on one side and two nodes on the other side. So there is a node and disk majority model that we needed to do testing on um, to make that work. With a five-node, it's not quite so bad. It's just every node in the cluster has its own vote, and with a five-node cluster, we can you know, sustain failures of up to two nodes. Actually, in both of them, I think we can sustain failures of, of up to two nodes. So just to um, highlight that a little bit, the majority node set 
where there's five nodes in the cluster. Each of the nodes maintains its own replica for the cluster configuration, so each node has its own vote. When it comes to the majority node and disk set, to avoid that situation where you might end up with two nodes on one side of the fence and two nodes on the other side of the fence, there's a disk that's selected with a vote as well that becomes the, the witness or the, the uh, quorum disk. So yeah, that's, I mean, we've had most of the features required for um, you know bumping up the number of nodes. I mean, we've supported uh, SCSI 3 since, I think, the 4.0 release. We also had that LSI SAS controller um, implemented in the virtual hardware since the 4.0 release as well. And, of course, we needed this um, persistent group reservation mechanism uh, to support it also. Um, so, yeah, we've had it there. I think what's just primarily held us back is the QA effort. We needed you know, to do all the testing and so on and make sure that it all works. So we do finally have a, uh, a release now where we can support five uh, Microsoft cluster failover nodes in, uh, in a vSphere virtual infrastructure. God, I mean, things have certainly moved on because I remember, remember a while ago, I mean, back in ESX2 days, uh, on the training courses, we used to actually show students how to set up um, clustering models like this, you know, and having a, having a second controller and that being for the shared and the, the other controller being for the boot disk and at that time it needed to be on local storage. But I, I must admit I haven't played around with Microsoft clustering for many years and it's certainly, it's, it seems to be a lot more complicated than it used to be with five nodes and a vote here. And <laughs> I'm yeah, wondering how, yeah. whether I'm ever going to really keep up with this uh, sort of stuff anymore, especially as I go higher up the stack. But I guess it's good that we're keeping on top of, of what they're doing, you know, as they move their clustering, we're making sure that customers can, can run that inside a virtual machine if they want to. Indeed. And of course, we have our own clustering and, um, you know, highly available features as well with DRS, HA and fault tolerance. So um, I think a lot of it is, you know, a lot of the the high availability and clustering requirements we can handle within our own vSphere um, product set. Mm. But there are st still customers who, um, you know, who would like to have the Microsoft kind of service failover mechanism implemented as well. So I think for those customers that were looking for greater than two nodes, this will be a, a welcome addition. Good. Okay, so I think that's what we were going to cover right? in sure. part one. Well, thank you, thank you for the part <laughs> one. Uh, very interesting. Um, please, uh, people who are watching, tune in for part two. Uh, we're going to record that directly after we've ended this particular uh, session, but we thought it would be a good idea if we kind of split up the, the content that Cormac had for uh, the, um, the two sessions. Um, Cormac started his own blog, um, uh, interestingly called CormacHogan.com. It must take me a long time to work out what the domain name should have been for that, Cormac. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I assume nobody else had registered that domain name already. And not yet, no. no. Uh, we also obviously blogs on the main VMware site, and um, you can follow him on Twitter at VMware Storage. So tune in for part two of what's new in vSphere 5.1 Storage. <laughs>